The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. Hello and welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Goller, here on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel today. I hope uh, listeners enjoyed last week's Encore uh, edition. It was an earlier interview with Dr. Emmett Miller, who's an expert in the area of imagery and visualization, healing and recovery. And uh, if you missed that uh, interview, I'd suggest uh, do go back and do have a listen to it. Last week or for the last seven days, I've had the good fortune to be in Tasmania. And that's that little tiny state right down the bottom of Australia across the water. Um, It's been absolutely an amazing uh, week down there. Tasmania's wilderness. Many people have said to me uh, it is on their bucket list to do and I suggest if anyone's looking at holidays to Tasmania, it is a wonderful, wonderful place uh, to visit. Now while I was down in Tasmania, I had the good fortune to uh, connect with a very special person down there who is going to be on the show later today. And uh, today the show um, mainly is going to focus on the evolution of conventional oncology. So I needed to find an oncologist who's been treating cancer patients for a very long time. And as I was visiting Tasmania, I thought, who better than Professor Ray Lowenthal, who is at the University of Tasmania in Australia, and he's also a part of the Menzies Research Institute, um, looking at various treatments and clinical trials in cancer. And he's described as one of Australia's pioneers in oncology. So uh, he very kindly consented to uh, an interview. And I think it's very important for us when we're looking at navigating the cancer maze and the best ways to do that, that we do take this what I'd call holistic approach. And a holistic approach must include the whole. It must include conventional medicine as well as the complementary, the lifestyle, all the other aspects of medicine if it's to be truly holistic. So I think these pioneers such as uh, Professor Lowenthal have a lot of value for us. I think they can provide insights um, into the evolution of their craft 
um, especially when it comes to cancer medicine, I think it's very important here too that we, we set the record straight in looking at that holistic approach. Because uh, I often see, and I'm sure you do too, media articles, um, things built such as, yeah, billions spent on um, cancer. We're still losing the war against cancer despite the amount of money that's poured into it. Well, this is one of the things that I wanted to discuss with Professor Lowenthal. How true is this? And what are the advancements in cancer medicine that have been made through conventional oncology from, say, looking back nearly 50 years? And uh, I think we'll find out some answers to those questions after we take our first break and we're back with the um, interview. Um, There'll be many questions I'll be asking uh, Professor Lowenthal on today's show um, that relates to the different kinds of treatments available in cancer. So I would suggest uh, if you know someone who might be interested in the show, give them a call, tell them to listen in because on Navigating the Cancer Maze, we are going to be finding out some of the answers to these very difficult questions today. And I think for us as people that may not have been around, I mean, I've been around in cancer medicine now for about 38 years, um, but for those people that come into this area from a uh, you know novice point of view, someone's newly diagnosed, we've spoken about this on the show before and that people can get a little bit of a one-sided view because they might remember a very nasty um, death of someone in the family, an aunt or an uncle, and presume that that was all to do with perhaps treatments and chemotherapy. And at the time, it very well may have been uh, one of the contributors. But uh, quite often, we don't look at the aspect of what cancer itself um, can do. So uh, with my questions to Professor Lowenthal, we're going to clear up some of these uh, mysteries and some of these myths too that surround cancer treatments. But first, um, I was going to do my usual with looking at uh, some of the emails from uh, this last week's inbox. And if we have time, I'll uh, do this in the last session. But I thought a couple of useful things today with Christmas coming, uh, some people having some time on their hands or perhaps looking for a Christmas gift, it might be very interesting to have a look at some of the things that are actually available uh, for cancer patients. Now, one of these is actually a free um, a free gift, um, something you could tell people about or try for yourself. So for those of you who are interested in apps for your phone, uh, something that I've found recently is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO for short, A-S-C-O. They're the world's leading professional organization and they represent many cancer physicians. Well, in 2012, this year, um, they designed an amazing app called Cancer.net Mobile. It's for Android services. And Cancer.net Mobile, as I said, it's free. And it's designed by oncologists to help people with cancer and their caregivers to plan and manage their treatment and care. So when I found this, um, we downloaded it. We put it on our Android. And I was actually very uh, impressed 
by not only the quality but the amount of information and the amount of guidance and direction that you can actually get from this um, app. So I'd highly recommend it. Um, one of the things that impressed me is it's a really comprehensive, uh, many, many different types of cancer in there. I think there's something like 124. Um, it's doctor approved. Um, there's a lot of interactive tools and it can really help you get the most out of visits to your doctor. One of the things that I find um, with uh, patients is when they go to their doctor that they often say, what questions should I ask? I don't know enough about what I have in order to ask the right question. And I think this particular app is going to be really helpful for that. So if you want to be involved in um, your treatment choices and you want to start up a really good communication with your doctor, I think this is an excellent tool. So um, that being said, next time when you're at your doctor's office, instead of reading those well-used and well-read magazines that we really don't want to look at, you could try then using your time very productively. Um, if you're the type of person who can't relax in the doctor's office um, while you're waiting to see them, you know, why not use that waiting room time to explore some valid information, formulate your questions and discuss this with your doctor. Um, I think so many patients these days only know so little really about their condition and it's one of the good ways that we can use the web and we often on this show actually uh, say to people be careful using the internet because there's a lot of misinformation on it. On the other hand, it's an amazing tool. So if you can get the right information, um, there is also with uh, ASCO, they have a fantastic website um, and that's also called just cancer.net, capital C and capital N, so www.cancer.net. Um, that was actually an award-winning patient information website when it was crafted. So I guess this leads in a little bit to uh, also my discussion with Professor Lowenthal today uh, because, uh, you know, we often talk about these non-advances that in, um, in cancer. However, when we start to see things like these apps and we see um, websites like the cancer.net just full of really good and valuable information. I think we can sort of uh, reframe that and say, well, yes, actually, we have come a long way in the last 50 years odd of working with cancer patients. So the other thing I wanted to um, look at, and it's our second health-related tip for the day. Oh, and by the way, if you're not familiar with apps, um, maybe ask one of your uh, your children or your grandchildren, uh, but you can download those kinds of um, applications for your mobile very simply by going to Google Apps and just uh, doing the search for the cancer.net mobile. Okay. Um, the other thing that's come to the forefront this week, uh, also related with today, is uh, record keeping. 
Now, one of my jobs is as an advisor and a consultant uh, for an international group and for international patients as well as Australian patients who want to attend Halvang Private Oncology Clinic in Germany. And I'm often involved in assisting patients to discover and find, in, in fact, and collate their information. And I'm always finding this to be rather a challenge. So, uh, you know, cancer in particular may involve many, many years of treatments, results, um, it's ongoing monitoring. And this week again, and being back at work, I've just been reminded how many patients have not accessed or bothered to keep copies of their records. Um, although they've been given to them quite often, it's absolutely essential and this critical information that you actually need. So a lot of valuable time can be lost while copies are, um, are being accessed. And sometimes this is uh, from many different hospitals, sometimes from many different countries, and particularly if you're a traveller, uh, you really need to look at how you are um, maintaining and keeping up to date your medical records. And if you're a traveller with cancer, that is very important indeed. So we're going to come back um, after we hear Professor Lowenthal's interview and I'll give you some tips on the types of records that uh, you can keep and some interesting methods of keeping those records. And when you hear Professor Lowenthal, I think you'll get an idea of why this becomes so important. Um, so just before we do go off to our break, it's probably a good idea to just give you a little more of an insight of um, who Professor Lowenthal actually is, and I'll just do this very briefly. Um, he's a very eclectic person. As I said earlier, he's a, um, he's a pioneer um, in medical oncology, and he's authored more than 100 scientific papers. And when I say he's been a very eclectic person, he's studied in a lot of countries. He's been a uh, ship's doctor on voyages to Antarctica. He's worked in um, Aboriginal or Indigenous health in Australia. He was awarded the Order of Australia um, for his services to um, uh, complementary um, um, oncology um, and this was from clinical trials and the sorts of work that he's done um, over the years in helping people with cancer. So he's been very involved uh, in the community and it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know him and to interview him today. So we are going to be coming back after the break navigating the cancer maze with Professor Ray Lowenthal. Don't go away, we'll be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hulvang-clinic.com. 
That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G dash clinic dot com. Or call us in Germany at 490-743-964240. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Hello, I'm Grace Gawler and we're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze. And today I have a very special guest, Professor Ray Lowenthal. Ray Lowenthal is a consultant hematologist and oncologist at the Royal Hobart Hospital. He is also a clinical professor in the School of Medicine and a member of the Menzies Research Institute of Tasmania. And for three years, until 2009, he was the director of the Department of Hematology and Oncology. So welcome to the program, Navigating the Cancer Maze, Professor Lowenthal. Thank you, Grace. Um, you work here at the Menzies Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that's actually being done here? Well, Menzies Institute is the premier medical research institute of Tasmania, and it has a very wide range of activities. But as far as cancer is concerned, it's particularly interested in looking at uh, genetic changes in ca various cancers, prostate cancer. My own interest is in uh, blood cancers like lymphomas and leukemias. So we have a research going on looking at familial blood cancers. Uh, we also have some, I'm also involved in research uh, of clinical trials, looking at new cancer treatments, which is really done through the hospital rather than the Menzies, but it is a cooperative venture and there's a a wide number, there's a large number of PhD students here who are working on various uh, activities related to molecular biology of cancer. Is this happening for um, mainly Australia or is there worldwide research connections? Oh no, any, any research these days always has worldwide connections with the internet, you're so, so close and in contact with uh, colleagues all around the world and indeed if you, you're interviewing me at a few days after we received notification that the University of Tasmania's clinical, research, clinical medicine research has been rated as well above international standards. Mm, it's impressive. So uh, you've been an oncologist now for quite some years. Yes. <laughs> um, with all your decades of clinical experience, for people who are listening to the program, what do you think have been the really major breakthroughs in cancer medicine? There have been a large number, particularly in recent years. We're in an exciting time of, ch of great change in uh, cancer treatments. I remember when I first came here in the 1970s, meeting up with an old tuberculosis doctor who said to me, I, I feel sorry for you, Ray, treating cancer. You can't do much about it, can you? And uh, that, that, was from, that was from a doctor who w would have seen complete changes in treating tuberculosis in his lifetime. Well, the, that was over 30 years until the 70s. Well, now in 30 and 40 years since the 70s, uh, in cancer treatment, there have been dramatic changes. Unfortunately, not in every cancer, but in a lot of different cancers. One of the big changes has been the attitude of the general public. When I first went into cancer medicine, 
the, the general attitude amongst the public was that cancer was a death sentence. Now I don't think that is the general opinion. Most people are aware that cancer on the whole can be treated. For many cancers it can be treated very well and in a number of cases can be completely cured and the general public is aware of this and are quite rightly demanding access to the, the newer and very effective drugs. Mm. So here in Tasmania, um, what would be the major cancers that you see? Well, it's, it's not very different to the rest of Australia. Uh, in, in women, you've got breast cancer and lung cancer. In men, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, that's cancer of the bowel. Is a, when you put the two sexes together, that's the most common cancer overall. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we, we have the range of cancers that occur in Western countries, very similar to most other Western countries. I suppose skin cancer down here is a bit of an issue too. Well, skin cancer, yes, non-melanoma skin cancer is the most common cancer overall mm. uh, in, in Australia, that's true. Melanoma is not quite as common here as in the, the uh, more tropical parts of Australia, but it still is a common problem. Right. Uh, we see quite a lot of it, of course, in Queensland where we are, and uh, mm. a lot of people aren't doing the slip-slop-slap campaign. Yeah. It, it, there is a controversy about that, of course, because especially in the, the higher latitudes like Tasmania, there's a question of balancing the need for some sunlight to get the sufficient vitamin D production against the potential dangers of sun exposure and causing skin cancers. So mm -hmm. the, the, the balance is a tricky issue, especially, especially during the, the long winters in Tasmania, and similar to the far northern reaches of the northern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there, there is a problem with vitamin D, so we, 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 we can't, we, we can't ban uh, exposure to the sun altogether. But just a few minutes a day is enough. Mm. That's probably some pretty good advice because uh, people listening to this show actually do live in colder climates, uh, mm. especially in America. So, um, if you could just tell us from your experience as an oncologist. I think a lot of people don't understand how cancer begins. And um, could I just get you in a sort of basic terms uh, to explain what cancer is, how it, and how it actually begins in the body, and how it actually changes in the genes? So to, to start at the, at the very beginning, to say a few things that I'm sure many of your listeners are very familiar with, the, the, the body is made up of millions upon millions of, of small parts called cells and the, the, the life is based on cells and cells divide and create more cells and the cells we have in our body are alive of course and they keep on producing and there's a there's a control over the cellular production to make sure that the cells that die once we're in adult life cells that die are completely balanced by new cells being produced cancer is in cancer there's a disruption to these controls and cells keep being produced when they're not needed. Why does this happen? Well we know now that in all cases of cancer there's a problem with the genetic control of the cells. So cancer has a genetic basis which is not the same as saying it's inherited. The, the, the genetic basis occurs in most cases uh, in cells that originally were normal and you get a mutation in a cell in, in the cell's genes that lead to uncontrolled proliferation of cells. And the mutation can come about for a number of reasons, maybe through chemical exposure such as smoke from cigarettes, maybe from radioactivity, um, and, but maybe from viruses, 
but in many cases we haven't, haven't any idea why this happens, but it, uh, that's the basis for it. Mm-hmm. And, and our understanding of this basis for, for the development of cancer has allowed the development of some, a whole range of new treatments which antagonize the, gen, the, the genes or interfere with the gene products. Okay, so uh, when we're actually looking at the genetics of cancer now, how is that actually altering, therefore, the treatments um, that are coming through? So this is where the huge breakthroughs are happening. If I can just use one particular cancer as an example, and then we can talk about other cancers. There's a a fairly unusual form of leukaemia called chronic myeloid leukaemia, which has an unusual age distribution. It's most common between the ages of 20 and 60 whereas typical cancers are more common as people get older. And previously, before there was effective treatment, the average survival was three to five years. So I've been involved in treating this particular form of leukaemia all my professional life. And I've got vivid memories of young people in their 20s and 30s dying of this form of leukaemia. About 10 years ago, well, for 20 years or more, it's been known that the genetic basis for this cancer is due to an abnormal gene on an unusual chromosome known as the Philadelphia chromosome and researchers identified the specific molecular basis for this particular genetic change in the original uh, leukemia producing blood cell and this has led to the development of of, uh, drugs that antagonize this uh, genetic change and the, the change in the treatment of this disease has been absolutely dramatic from being a disease that was lethal it's now a disease that people are surviving. There are patients now who have been alive for, for the whole 10 years since the new drugs have become available, and some very sensitive methods of testing have shown complete disappearance of the leukaemia. These people almost certainly completely cured. And now, that's, the, that's a, one of the first and a very dramatic example of the new kind of so-called targeted treatments, but there have been many other examples. One, um, um, a better known and, more, known and more common example is the use of a drug called Herceptin in breast cancer. About 20% of breast cancer cases, in about 20% of breast cancer cases, the cancer cells display a, a protein on their surface called, called HER2, and an antagonist to HER2 have been produced, the best known of which is called Herceptin. And if this drug is added to standard treatment for breast cancer, it uh, increases the cure rate of early breast cancer and it uh, prolongs the survival of the people who've got advanced breast cancer. So this is, a, this, is, this is just another example and there's now more and more. So this is where the great change is taking place in the treatment of, of cancer. And what's really important is that on the whole, these drugs have far fewer side effects than traditional chemotherapy, mm. much easier to take. Mm. I think that's a, a really important factor because I know that many people in the alternative medicine movement do say that there's been no advances in traditional cancer treatment and therefore this is why you know they're using many of these other treatments. But when you explain the, the complexity of the genetics, it seems fairly unlikely that there's going to be uh, folklore remedies or diet and lifestyle that will impact the genetics to that degree. Would you like to comment on that? Which is not to, not to say that it isn't a value to look into lifestyle factors and and diet, but these things on their own are certainly not going to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they can complement the cancer treatments, help people feel better, 
uh, nutrition is obviously an important thing, whatever other treatments are used. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm all, all in favour of people adopting lifestyle methods in, co- in cooperation with the, the best e- effective evidence-based treatments. Yeah, I think that's something we promote on Navigating the Cancer Maze quite a lot. And I often say to people, if I go to the races, the horse races, I always take an each-way bet. <laughs> I never just bet on the winner. And I think it's the same in this case, that you need to be uh, doing the both science in balance. That brings me to my next question. Uh, with the resurgence of, say, folklore medicine in cancer, uh, it was also brought with it an anti-biopsy movement. And in practice, I've had this many times where patients that I'm seeing late stage and I have to send off for a biopsy, they've never had one. Or people that had a biopsy got the diagnosis and went straight into alternative medicine. Um, I'm living in an area where we probably see a lot more people um, who are practicing that type of medicine in in northern Australia. Um, But could you comment on biopsies? Because obviously biopsies have a very direct connection with the new targeted treatments that are out, and you virtually can't have one without the other. Well, it's absolutely true. So uh, you need a biopsy to prove that a diagnosis. There's many examples over the years of people who thought they had cancer. And uh, I remember in in the early days of my practice, before it was common to do biopsies, that we but where it was more common to do autopsies than it is these days, that we had a number of examples of patients dying of what was said to be cancer and at autopsy they did not have cancer. I can think particularly of two cases that turned out to be tuberculosis that were said said, uh, during the patient's life to be cancer. So those are tragedies. Um, And these days we much more readily recommend a biopsy. In fact, ca- cancer cannot said to be diagnosed until it's verified under a microscope because there is all, it's not only tuberculosis but other diseases can be mistaken. But even more important these days is to know exactly what type and subtype of cancer we're dealing with because the treatments have become very specific. That The particular treatment, for example, that I mentioned for chronic myeloid leukaemia only works for that particular type of leukemia, not others. So you have to confirm absolutely what you're dealing with. That would be a waste of time, not to, not to say a waste of expense, because these drugs tend to be very expensive. Uh, and uh, the, the same applies to breast cancer, for example. I've talked about Herceptin. Only 20% of breast cancer cases have the particular protein marker on their, on their cell surface that would allow them to be treated by Herceptin, you'd be wasting everybody's time if you gave it to people who, who didn't have that particular marker, but if they do have it, then they will benefit very greatly. So biopsies are a crucial part of the practice of oncology. Now, one of the folklore myths is that having a biopsy can spread the cancer. I was going to ask you that next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, that's definitely not, not the case. Uh, with with a couple of exceptions, there are. It is known that a biopsy of a cancer in the liver can occasionally spread the cancer along the needle track. So this is something that we avoid in cases where it looks like the cancer could be cured by excision. So a biopsy is to clarify with the terminology. To talk about a biopsy usually means just taking a small sample of the of the tissue, not the whole abnormal tissue, and it may just be done by putting a needle into the tissue or it may be done by a small operation. But uh, in, in the rare cases we know where occasionally you can, there is a risk of spreading the cancer, 
we would always take special precautions and usually not usually do what's called an excision biopsy where the whole tissue is taken out rather than a little bit. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, it's not the case that, that doing a biopsy can spread the cancer and any, any risk which is very small is outweighed by the importance of knowing exactly what you're dealing with and then you're in a position to recommend specific treatment. And if we move on to specific treatment, with chemotherapy, for instance, you said before that a lot of the, the treatments have changed and the way that they're delivered mm-hmm. has changed, plus that there's, there's new drugs. So with uh, chemotherapy, could you tell us about the, the sorts of advances that there's been in that particular area? Because many people are actually afraid of chemo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they've seen their uncle or their aunt um, die in a very nasty way. People have often thought it was the chemotherapy more than the cancer. Um, and obviously it could have been one or the other or a combination of both. And a lot of clients have come to me and said, well, look, I'd never have chemotherapy because, you know, all the vomiting and uh, the dreadful way that they saw someone die. So as a clinical oncologist with all those years of experience, could you tell us a little bit about that? So from the patient's point of view, one of the most important advances has been the, the ability to reduce the side effects. We could now have some very effective anti-nausea drugs. It's, it is of course quite true that a lot of anti-cancer drugs cause nausea and vomiting, often quite severe, and I have memories in my early days of practice of seeing patients with their head down the toilet bowl vomiting their heart out. It's a terrible thing, but that's a, that doesn't happen these days. Nowadays it's not uncommon to see a patient a couple of hours after having chemotherapy tucking into a stake. So, so things, things have dramatically changed, which is not to say that they're 100% effective, like everything else. Uh, you know, responses vary from one patient to another, and the drugs, effectiveness of drugs can vary. But generally speaking, chemotherapy is much more tolerable than it used to be. We've become much more adept at uh, giving chemotherapy without causing major side effects. Now, having said that, that we also need to look at the effectiveness. The, the sort of research I've been involved in over the years has in many cases involved clinical trials of chemotherapy, comparing one type of chemotherapy with another, one drug with another. And so over the years we've learned how best to use and how most effectively to use chemotherapy. Uh, There are certain diseases that we never used to treat with chemotherapy that now we know do sometimes respond. Um, Amongst the more difficult ones are cancer of the pancreas, but there is chemotherapy that can sometimes relieve it. Um, Amongst the cancers that are very effectively treated. We've got uh, high cure rates with lymphomas, Hodgkin's disease, high cure rates with germ cell tumours, that's the cancer of the testis, which is the most common cancer in young men, and very effective ways of treating secondary or metastatic cancer. For example, patients with breast cancer that are spread to outside the breast can often live for many years with effective chemotherapy and hormone therapy despite having secondary cancer. So there have been a lot of advances. Mm. In fact, you told me a good story the other day. Maybe you'd like to repeat it for our listeners. A patient with lymphoma that you've had, you said, for many years, and um, they just keep coming back and you've got something new for them. (laughs) Well, the particular patient I'm thinking about has had uh, lymphoma for over 20 years, and uh, he's had various exacerbations and remissions. Every time he has a flare, we we can come up with something to treat him with and he's basically lived long enough to see a series of advances so if, if we only had today the treatment that we had 20 years ago he would have been long dead but uh, every time he's had a flare he's 
we've uh, come up with one of the new treatments and uh, he's still going strong. Good story. Um, I think many people would take heart from that. Uh, can we talk a little bit about hormone therapy um, in, in cancer treatment? Because it's another area of fear for many women uh, that they're going to have a lot of nasty side effects. Have there been any advances in recent years in hormone therapy, particularly for, say, breast cancer? Well, yes. No, so, so one of the things that uh, has been very promising for breast cancer has been the ability to treat patients with hormones. And this is based on the fact that breast cancer cells, in about 80% of cases, have on their surface receptors for female hormones, estrogen and progesterone. And it's been, been known, it goes back to the 19th century, actually. This is a very, this knowledge of which, which we've been aware for over 100 years. Uh, if we antagonise the estrogen, we can control the cancer quite often for years. And in, fa in fact, this, although we talk about targeted treatment as being a modern thing, we could, you can think about this as being the earliest example of targeted treatment, the identification of cancer, breast cancer cells that contain receptors for estrogen and the development of treatments that will antagonise those receptors or antagonise the estrogen. Now, the, uh, Women might be fearful they're going to get a moustache or get, get masculine features, but this is not the case with modern hormone treatments. And in a sense, it's better to talk about anti-hormones than hormones because what we're doing is antagonising, in, in one case, the receptors for estrogen. We don't even block the estrogen itself. In other cases, we do block estrogen. But uh, generally speaking, the, the, the side effects are minimal or small. Some women may get menopausal type side effects but for older women the side effects are minimal and you can get tremendous benefit. You can get control of cancer for years with these, tre these treatments. Mm. And in prostate cancer are there any developments there with hormonal treatments? Well, horm or indeed yeah. any treatments yes. with prostate yeah. cancer? Yes, well the hormonal treatments have been again known for a long time for prostate cancer and can be quite effective for a long time. Uh, more and more important has been the recognition that in prostate cancer that they now can sometimes respond to chemotherapy. For a long time, it was thought chemotherapy was not effective in prostate cancer, but the particular combination has recently been identified that is effective. And so, like all cancers, there's a slow but general advances in in treatment. Mm -hmm. um... Let's talk about early detection and uh, what people should do. Uh, there's a lot of talk out there in a lot of the women's magazines, etc., about prevention, um, early detection. As an oncologist, having seen a lot of people with cancer and obviously heard a lot of stories, mm. have you got messages uh, for people in terms of detection of early detection of cancer? Well, in terms of prevention, first of all, the most important thing is don't smoke. That mm. Smoking is responsible for probably 30 to 40 percent of all, all cancers we see these days and generally speaking smoking induced cancers tend to have a worse prognosis for example the lung cancers and cancer of the head and neck throat these cancers have a very poor outlook so that's the most important thing in terms of early detection uh, the pap smear is one of the greatest advances in early detection and treatment it's uh, been around now for 30 or 40 years and it's, it's very important that women Get, have regular checks to, to identify cancer of the cervix in an early stage and prevent it. One of the nastiest kind of cancers if it's allowed to advance, but one of the most preventable or uh, treatable in the early stages. 
uh, mammograms. There's been a recent controversy about mammography. Uh, the, the general consensus is that mammography detects early cancers and can reduce the mortality from, can- from breast cancer, but perhaps its benefit has been a bit overstated, but, ge- but the general consensus is that it's still well and truly worthwhile. So mammography every couple of years in women over the age of 50 is definitely recommended. In terms of co- another area where there's been real advances in prevention is in colon cancer and testing uh, for uh, bowel bleeding, blood in the stool, can identify polyps and can identify uh, bowel cancer at the early early curable stages, and that's certainly something that's recommended and well worth doing. With colonoscopies then, how often do you think, or is there an age limit where you should start thinking about having a colonoscopy just for Mm. checking? Colonoscopy for checking is not recommended unless there's a positive stool or unless there's a strong family history or previous polyps. Mm-hmm. But uh, And then once every five years seems to be the, the current recommendation. Right. With uh, prostate cancer, we've talked about the mammograms as well. Uh, PSA tests for men, this is a really controversial mm-hmm. area. I don't know if you've got a comment on it, but it seems very confusing um, as to whether the PSA test is valid. Yes, uh, in my opinion, it's not not worth doing. I mean, you, we have to be, be careful to distinguish identification of early cases with early with, with who have no symptoms. Uh, compared with pa- any any patient, anyone who turns up to the doctor and complains of symptoms that, of the type that might be caused by prostate cancer, such as getting up many times at night to pass urine or difficulty passing urine, they obviously need to be checked out for prostate cancer. That's different from checking healthy people who have no symptoms. Ch- doing PSA tests in men who have absolutely no symptoms runs the risk of identifying ca- cases that never would have caused uh, any problems? There, there is this issue that, in, that if you do a autopsy of elderly men, men over the age of 70 or 80, uh, you find a high proportion of them have unrecognised prostate cancer that never in their lives caused any symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so, prostate cancer is a bit unusual in the sense that, by doing PSA testing, you can identify a lot of so-called early cases of prostate cancer, which, if you'd followed them up, never would have developed into, into serious cancers, never would have caused problems. So you run the risk of over-diagnosis and tre- treatment, unnecessary treatment for prostate cancer can lead to a number of side effects. That's why it's so controversial. The question is, mm. is the balance of early detection uh, beneficial compared with the risks of unnecessary treatment? And that's where the controversy is. My own interpretation is that we, the PSA is not specific enough. It identifies... Uh, cases you don't need to find. It also identifies benign problems in the prostate. So I would not recommend uh, routine PSA testing in people who have no symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, you spoke before about genetics. Is, is it likely that we'll see genetic testing for things like prostate cancer and breast cancer in the near future? Not in the near future, but I can envisage that in a 10 or 20 years we might be able to do a DNA profile and, and identify those cancers that people are predisposed to, mm-hmm. and that would that would certainly have that would allow us to target those people who are more likely to develop certain cancers, and, and not uh, check the whole population, which not only is wasteful but 
it runs the risk of overdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. So on the cancer horizon, as we're finishing up this interview, um, what do you see on the horizon in the near future for cancer treatment and diagnosis? A dramatic change in the treatment. Uh, I'm sure in 10 years' time we'll be, we'll be using far less chemotherapy, far more of these targeted treatments, and they'll be more and more effective. And some of these targeted... I, di- I didn't mention before, many of these targeted treatments are given in tablet form, so people will be taking tablets for their cancer, and we're converting, in many cases, converting an acute illness, cancer, into a chronic illness, a bit like diabetes, where people will live with it for years, maybe may needing to take continuous treatment or maybe not, but there's going to be a terrific... My, my younger colleagues are going to be practising quite differently in 10 years' time from the way we were practising 10 years ago. That's uh, very enlightening, and I'm sure a lot of patients listening today will be very pleased to hear that news. Um, I've been speaking today with Professor Ray Lowenthal and we're talking about navigating the cancer maze and I think you've helped to bring some clarity um, to that from the medical oncology perspective. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Great for inviting me. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Holvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Guller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Hi, Grace Goller back here with Navigating the Cancer Maze. And I'm sure you would have found that interview with Professor Ray Lowenthal quite enlightening. Um, We've talked a little bit on this program before about the role of genetics in cancer. And I think we've answered our question pretty well today just giving the other side of the bad press that we're not winning the war on cancer. Well, maybe we're not winning the cure war, but we are winning 
um, it would appear the the treatment and the progression um, in treatment. And uh, I think with Professor uh, Lowenthal's contribution um, in this area that we see cancer making headway, cancer treatments making headway in the development of genetic and molecular medicine. So we would have to say that the advances have been enormous um, if we look at the walkway um, that Professor Lowenthal has actually had during his career. And uh, I must make a correction. Um, I did mention that uh, he was director of the Department of Hematology and Oncology for three years. In fact, it was 30 years um, that he was uh, in that position in uh, the Royal Hobart Hospital and, of course, his other positions at the Menzies Research Institute. So in the next um, five or six weeks, I'm going to be interviewing a number of experts in the field as we pull together uh, more information about navigating the cancer maze using conventional treatments. And I will be talking with people who specialise in colorectal cancer, um, gynaecological cancer, uh, people who specialise in this area of genetic and molecular medicine as well. And, uh, of course, breast cancer and prostate cancer will be the focus. If you have any particular questions um, or if you would like me to focus on a particular type of cancer, please don't hesitate to contact me at institute at gracegawler.com. That's the email. And I'll be more than happy to uh, dialogue with you and find someone who's an expert in the area of uh, your particular interest in cancer. So, um, as we were talking uh, before we went to the first break about uh, various methods that you can actually use in helping to navigate the cancer maze, and again, very connected with uh, what Professor Lowenthal has been speaking about, uh, we talked about um, the way that you can use phone apps. I mean, this is a, a great development. Uh, for cancer patients and a great tool for empowerment and information. And that is coming very directly out of the field of conventional medicine. One of the other areas that I did want to uh, speak about today, we were talking about record keeping and uh, that this is one of the areas that I find is perhaps the uh, the least efficient from the point of view of cancer patients. If you're someone listening today who keeps good records, that is fantastic. But in the majority of patients that I see, um, record keeping um, or lack of it really means a lot of extra time and energy and sometimes not being able to find the material that you need at all uh, because a hospital has long uh, changed the records or things have just disappeared in the system. So uh, some tips for the holiday season. Now, during the holiday season, we often have a little more time on our hands. And one of the things that you could put some energy into if you're a patient or perhaps if you're a carer who's uh, with a patient, 
this is often a wonderful thing for carers to contribute um, to, is helping to pull the records together and putting them in some kind of order. Uh, it's exceptionally helpful. Uh, we've had patients who have been overseas and um, who have gotten into trouble. Their cancer's been long gone. They've had a, a recurrence, however, when they've been overseas. And uh, we've had to uh, hunt around and go through various hospital channels and pathology channels to uh, pull together someone's history. So there are solutions for this. So today, if you're a cancer patient or a carer listening, um, you are keeping copies of uh, your medical records, say, in a shoebox or a bag or popped away in the cupboard somewhere. Um, you know, often people do this because they say, oh, look, cancer, I'm so over it. And um, they don't sort of take this necessary time. I suggest organising records in a book is a really an excellent way to go. Um, one of my patients recently said, oh, I understand this now. This is like a business plan. I'm putting together a business plan for my recovery and I need to have all the background and the information and what's happened and um, the strategies. And that is absolutely uh, correct. So organising your material, I suggest for my patients that they use an A4 folder, one of those ones that you can uh, put in with the clips in it and it takes plastic insert sleeves. Uh, that works really very well and it's very simple for putting in the various information. Um, I think putting some inserted coloured tabs, dividing the information into clear sections is helpful. Having a section for medical letters, blood tests, scan reports, surgical reports, information like Professor Lowenthal was talking about um, is very, very useful. Even if you are well now and have had cancer, um, it's worthwhile getting this information out and actually uh, putting it into some kind of a format. Uh, one of the things we find that patients often have forgotten about or don't think is relevant actually is original pathology and histology reports uh, from surgery when uh, your material from a tumour has been looked at under the microscope. I also suggest that you make a summary page of your medical condition at the front of this book and uh, very importantly, make a section for complementary therapies or any other alternative medicines that you have used or that you are using. Now recently, um, I'll repeat this little story again. Um, I talked about it when I did one of my uh, broadcasts from the Halvang Clinic in Germany, but I had an Australian patient who was diagnosed with apricot kernel poisoning that manifested as severe liver damage. Now, doctors presumed um, here in Australia she had some sort of manifestation of her cancer that had caused jaundice. However, um, in Germany, one of the oncologists who had knowledge of alternative medicines looked at the notes that she'd made at my suggestion and he immediately knew where to look and what to look for and he suspected what was going on. He performed several liver biopsies and it would uh, not have been cancer that actually took this young woman's life, but actually toxicity from the daily apricot kernels that she'd been taking over several months. So thanks to his intervention and also thanks to the available notes. Uh, this young mum is going to see Christmas with her family this year. Um, the oncologist had said that she would have died within a few weeks had she not been treated for the um, vitamin B17 poisoning, which is, of course, um, a component of the apricot kernels.
So uh, just briefly, um, I'd like to talk about MediAlert bracelets. I wear one myself and anyone who has a medical condition should actually have one of these. It's recorded and it's kept at a central database. So if anything happens to you while you're out and about or overseas, it can actually be traced. And these can now actually be purchased um, on a USB or something like a credit card. Now, they're really excellent for traveling because if anything happens to you while you're out and about traveling, and we hope it doesn't, but things do happen, uh, you can have all of your history, all of your scans, everything put onto that little card. If you look this up on the internet, there's actually a number of these available. And um, if you just type in MedicAlert or um, MedicAlert um, credit card, uh, USB, you will actually find quite a lot of these little devices. This makes a great Christmas gift for someone who's dealing with cancer and perhaps a, a carer or grandchild or someone can actually upload the material, which can be potentially life-saving. So we have come to the end today of navigating the cancer maze. I'd like to thank Professor Lowenthal for his time in being a part of today's show and for giving such valuable information. And we will be back at the same time next week, navigating the cancer maze on Voice America's health and wellness channel. Have a great week. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and bye for now. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon, U.S. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone.